million-dollar homes. That's the average single-family home price twice this year so far in Kauai. And here on Oahu, we are gaining ground with the price tag hitting $950,000, according to the uh, last figures released by the Honolulu Board of Realtors. Remember when TZ Economics' Paul Brubaker warned of this, and many thought, it's a ways off into the future. Well, guess what? It's 2021. It's later than you think. Here's Paul Brubaker speaking frankly about Hawaii's expectations and the scarring of our economy. There are two issues. One is actually kind of a deep one that people actually don't look that far out into the future. It's kind of a disturbing one because, you know, first of all, we all drive around on roads and through tunnels and live in buildings that people had the foresight to build in the in like 1958 or something when they were actually thinking about it. They just come through a war and they were thinking about how great it was to be alive and what the future could bring. So there's, there's that part of it. But then there's another part of it, which I think is even more important than just the you know, sheer home price appreciation story, which is that we get hung up on these artificial boundaries. And as Dr. Evil would say, $1 million for some reason is, you know, it's just like stuck in our heads as this threshold that at which something happens or you need to make like 999999 does not have the same impact as $1 million. And where that shows up is not just in this conversation where we all take note of the fact that it's not 917,000 and last year or whatever it was, 865, uh, that it's suddenly a million, which we do need to come back to. It's the fact that the threshold effect itself makes it notable and it causes economic policy to be distorted. So for example, the city council many years ago adopted a property tax threshold, which at the time when they asked us, we suggested if they were going to do it, which maybe wasn't advisable, but if they were going to, that they would never pick an arbitrary threshold like $1 million or $1 million and dollar three eighty, they would pick a fixed quantile of the distribution of home prices like the top 5% or the top 10% or whatever it was that they thought they were shooting for because over time as valuations rise the top five percent becomes the top ten percent and then you know you wake up one day and it's the top thirty percent and if the median is one million that means half the homes are valued at more than a million and whatever thought you were doing to tax the top five percent suddenly just became half of all homes which surely wasn't the original intent so this is interesting from a number of perspectives, but the one that I think is actually happening here, which is just regular appreciation turbo supercharged by the COVID anomaly. Right. And uh, I think I think that's the thing, right? We were all afraid that we were going to get pushed over a fiscal cliff, you know, with COVID. And then I guess it's just the reality where we've seen, you know, we watched Kauai's numbers hit a million dollars twice already. And now here on Oahu, we're approaching that. It is important to remember that for 65,000 plus or minus 5,000 persons who are no longer employed in Hawaii, there was a fiscal cliff. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. Let's, uh, let's not forget that. Yeah. But, but to get to your question, I think it is important to drill down and understand what's really going on underneath the surface because it's not just garden variety appreciation. But it's also not, this is not the Japan bubble of the late 1980s. This is not the subprime bubble of the early 2000s. This is an idiosyncratic event associated with the disruption, some of it unanticipated, 
but much of it in retrospective, kind of obvious, that accompanied the COVID event and the behavioral changes that it engendered. So, for example, the reason prices on Kauai or, say, Maui for single-family homes are rocketing the way they are aren't because of the customary sort of bubblicious housing cycle factors at work. There's no surge of offshore investors like the Japanese in the 1980s or like the Californian second home buyers in the early 2000s. But there is a surge of investors. And it's essentially, you can think of them as um, remote workers or call them dot-com refugees, if you will. These are people who having found, and more importantly, their employers having found that they are at least as productive working from home or working remotely as they were working in a conventional workplace, that it really doesn't matter where they live if they can get the work done. And places that are attractive in which to live, which no longer require a commute, to a workplace in another location or another state or across the ocean are seeing those impacts. So that's what's happening on Kauai. That's what's happening on Maui right now. That's what's happening in Idaho. And in, I mean, top four states for population increase last year, Idaho, Arizona, Utah, and Nevada in no particular order, essentially people moving from the West Coast to the Intermountain West because they can keep their jobs, but they can go live somewhere outside the urban environments in which they used to have to live uh, and still participate, you know, in the economy uh, productively. Same thing is happening outside, you know, out of Manhattan where, um, you know, there's a whole cohort of people that have moved to the suburbs or the exurbs or to Zoom towns in rural America. And then there's another cohort of people that are moving in. Just remember, every time there's a seller for, say, a midtown Manhattan condo, there is a buyer, and the same is true on Kauai, where home prices are going up. It just means that the people buying are willing to pay more than the people who were previously living there. We're also seeing, you know, the uh, vacation rental market bounce back. Absolutely. And by the way, in case anybody in the tourism complex didn't get that newsflash or didn't get that memo, we've been pretty sure, and we have had reason to believe for some time, that the rank hierarchy in terms of tourism resilience was vacation rentals, the most resilient, timeshares, previously the number one most resilient, but now eclipsed by vacation rentals, more resilient in turn than condos, which in turn are more resilient than hotels. That is, people come back and, you know, hotels have implicit in the idea of a short-term rental is optionality, right? I can put the reservation back to the hotel without penalty. Whereas timeshare travelers historically are highly motivated to take advantage of the intervals that they've already acquired. I have been seeing a, a number of foreclosures in the paper, in the public notices, so I'm not really sure what's happening. Well, okay, there's, the a, there's two different things. One is the city, I mean, call it bad timing or bad judgment, but evidently not knowing that the pandemic was around the corner, the city and county of Honolulu decided to double down on its enforcement of a straight-up ban from 30 years ago, right, of prohibition of uh, undocumented vacation rentals going back to 1989. So in 2019, they decided we're going to ramp up the enforcement, we're going to increase the credibility of enforcement and deter and actually induce people to exit and sell and dump their properties. So what we're talking about in the single-family market is not actually happening or hadn't been happening until just recently in the condo market at all on Oahu because 
there was a fire sale going on uh, in the condo market, particularly down, you know, in Waikiki and whatnot, as condos previously in the vacation rental pool, but evidently illegally or previously without credible threat of enforcement, essentially being sold in a big portfolio reallocation. On the neighbor island, where each of the destinations has made an accommodation, enabling vacation rentals to operate in some form or another, the demand increase you're seeing in all cases in favor of vacation rentals is partly a reflection of their safe haven status as detached dwellings in many cases, particularly on the neighbor island. I don't know if the foreclosures in the timeshare market, you know, what's driving that, if it's just people couldn't get over here and then just stop paying. But, you know, there, there's a lot of things at play. You know, the it's a city swirling, and- exactly. It's a swirling maelstrom of factors at work. Another one, for example, is that there has been a lot of forbearance in mortgage lending that has actually deferred the resolution process, such as foreclosure, which ordinarily would have accompanied a massive economic shock of the source sort represented by last year's recession. So we we just haven't seen the fallout in some cases. And to the extent we're seeing numbers in the foreclosure data that suggest something's afoot, you know, there could be more to come because we've actually deferred a lot of that catastrophic realization of financial risk. That was part of a conversation we had with economist Paul Brubaker with TZ Economics. We'll hear more about what he has to say about tourism and the crossroads we're at as we try and recover from this health and economic crisis. Support for HPR comes from the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to supporting the Hakalau Refuge and conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More on helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. is the conversation on HPR1. Disruption, disruption, disruption. That is what we've been living with for the past year since the pandemic triggered a shutdown of our economy. So how do we move through this recovery phase? Our goal is to make us less reliant on tourism unrealistic. Economist Paul Brubaker doesn't hold back on his thoughts about what we failed to do, not just through this pandemic, but long before this health and economic crisis. Once we hit the million-dollar mark for homes here on Oahu, will we see even more people leave our shores? We pick up our conversation where we left off, talking about tourism. What do you think is going to happen with tourism? You know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, a vaccine passport, but some places are going thumbs down on a passport. You know, people in Texas and maybe Florida. So does that mean they they don't come here? Yeah. What's your take on that? Yeah, they can all stay at home. People from Texas and Florida, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, (laughs) I'm sorry, when I, when I was a kid and I traveled the world with my family, and I'm talking about the 1950s and 1960s, I distinctly remember that we traveled with a passport and our yellow World Health Organization vaccination document, and we presented both upon arrival. People obviously have forgotten what it's like to live in a world where infectious disease takes one of every seven children in a family. That's how life was 100 years ago. It's the first stage of grief. They're in denial that they actually live in that world where 600, 700,000 Americans will be dead by the end of this summer because of a novel coronavirus at the very moment that they're running around saying see i didn't get it it wasn't that bad 
So, yeah, they can all stay at home. Y'all can stay in Florida. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, on another note, walking through Waikiki and seeing the tourists rebound, but is it the kind of tourists that we want? I don't know. I mean, we don't see uh, enough of the visitors from Japan yet. I don't know what's happening with Duty Free, you know, the Galleria over there. There's still a lot of shops that are pretty empty. They don't have customers. Uh, honestly, I'm, I'm going to have to just pass on any question that contains the phrase, are they the tourists we want? <laughs> I, re- I remember this distinctly after Hurricane Anifi. The version of it there was Mayor, bless her heart, Angie, I'm not picking on you, but Mayor Marianne Kusaka and I had this conversation then, and we've had it for 20 years, 25 years. But after the hurricane, nobody wanted to replace the hotels that were blown up by the hurricane. They wanted to rebuild in the form of timeshare, because then if you rebuild where there had been a hotel, a timeshare, then you don't actually own the building. And that means you don't own the next hurricane, right? The timeshare owners own it. You operate it and you make money. And as we know now in retrospect, 25 years later, they tend to be travelers that follow through on their commitments and don't cancel. So it's a more resilient market. But point of debate 25 years ago was that, sorry, Auntie, we kind of don't get a choice. The choice is between timeshare and nothing. It's not a choice between timeshare and hotel. We and right now we're kind of in the same situation because right now the choice is between wackadoodles from the Dakotas and Texas and Florida that don't wear masks and zero because people from Japan won't come to America because America is too stupid to be a place anybody would want to travel to right now. It's not that we won't let them come here. They don't want to come here (laughs) because America is where the dumb people live. Well, I guess, so you're saying we shouldn't be picky. It's either tourists or no tourists, right? (laughs) Be grateful for what we have. It's either mainland guys or nothing. Because people from places like East Asia, where they actually contain the novel coronavirus and behave in a manner that is designed to preempt other people from being affected, why would they go to a country, the United States of America, where people don't give a crap about whether other people get sick? All they care about is whether they're going to get sick. Well, we've so, just been hearing for some time now about resetting the tourist industry and trying to— my point to... is, you don't, it's not like an engineer. You don't get to die, twist the dials around and choose who comes here. We've been hearing for 30 years that all we need is higher-spending visitors. How's that going, bro? Right? More visitors, not more dollars. Was that the outcome? That is the outcome, but that's not the one people intended. They thought we were going to engineer the opposite— more dollars, not more visitors. Right now, it's not realistic to presume that we get to decide who's going to come here. And thank you very much. We don't want you people here because you're from the wrong place, or you don't spend enough money, or you don't stay in the kind of lodging that we prefer that you would stay in. We just went through six months with essentially no tourists, and it blasted 60, 70, 80, 100,000 people out of work, some of them still to this day. And you're, we're having an argument about who would we prefer to come back to Hawaii? Like we should be so lucky to get anybody. big part of the reason that America's reputation is so trashed. This is the place where you go to die from COVID. In the advanced economies, America is the place you go to die. So if you think that just opening international travel is going to reduce a lot of foreigners to come here, I, I don't think you're 
seeing it in the right perspective right now. So what do we need to do to boost our economy? I mean, there's a lot of talk about technology, broadband. Yeah, I mean, nothing prevented anybody from doing that before COVID. Nothing prevented anybody from doing that during COVID, and nothing prevents anybody from doing that now. So this whole argument that, I don't know, it's not even an argument. It's, it's kind of like bogus that if we don't do tourism, we can do something else. It's just kind of ridiculous because we can do everything else and tourism. We just went through a year where we didn't have tourism and we got hammered. So, yeah, I agree with you. We should do all of the above. That's the answer, all of the above. Do you think the pandemic will push people to go in the direction of diversified ag? We've only been talking about that forever. We don't measure agriculture jobs because there's not enough of them. You know, we're going to double 0.5% of GDP. Woohoo! That's our goal, to double agricultural. Fine. Hey, knock yourself out. Hey, what prevented you from doing that before? Not a damn thing. You sound very pessimistic, like all the, 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 the great things that we were going to learn from the pandemic. Well, no, I just... I mean, I don't know. Does that seem pessimistic to you? We should do all of the above. To me, that's like, let's get on with it. Let's just do all of the above. What I hear today is the number is not 10 million. The number is 7 million, and it has to be the right 7 million people. It can't be those 7 million. It's got to be these 7 million over here. And we can't do telescopes, right? We can't do astronomy anymore, and we're not going to do biotechnology. So we'll do science and technology except when it's biotechnology. And, oh, except when it's astronomy. Let's see, is there anything else on the list? Yeah, we'll do agriculture, but it's got to be organic. That's all I hear. To me, that sounds pessimistic. And you can look at the data where the population in Hawaii has been declining for years. And it's already a referendum on how it's working out, listening to all those guys that tell me that less tourism is more and that for some reason, we should be doing things that we could have been doing all along, which, with which I don't disagree. But then, in addition, you're telling me that they have to be on your approved list of things to do. If there's something to be pessimistic about, is that we're already the zombie economy. That we were the zombie economy pre-COVID. We were already the living dead. We just hadn't sort of realized it yet. I'm optimistic that we can bring everything back and do more. Form your expectations from this. Tourism is on its way back to a recovery, which, without the international component, will be 70%, 7 million out of the 10 million of what it was before. I am not convinced that this is the year that international travelers will want to come back to America in general or to Hawaii in particular, although I think Hawaii's got a better shot at it than a lot of America because we did a better job in Hawaii than the rest of America in mitigating the novel coronavirus and containing its uh, most adverse impacts. You know, not as many people died per capita in Hawaii. We did, we actually did that. But it's a long haul when the fact is that all the countries we're talking about restoring travel and tourism with are countries that did way better than we did. So. You know, to be continued. That's that's not a that's probably not a twenty. That's not on the 2021 list. Take into account the fact that people have been leaving. Residents on net have been leaving year after year after year, and the population has been declining and declining and declining. And was doing so before COVID. Something much deeper 
is going on, which then, to bring us back to where we started, has to lead one to contemplate, you know, the extent to which the robust appreciation in residential real estate valuations, and then primarily in the detached dwelling single-family home space, not so much in urban condos, is durable. Like, how long will that last? You know, will it be over when the last remote worker has confirmation from Google or wherever they work that they can live on Kauai and work in um, Santa Clara County? And, uh, again, these are all things that have yet to be resolved because we're still in the middle of the actual disruption. Dealing with disruption. That was Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics talking about expectations for our recovery from this health and economic crisis. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the art and museum spaces on Friday and Saturday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Joining us for today's Reality Check segment is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter, government reporter, Kevin Dayton. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Good. It's hard to believe that we're almost done with the legislative session. (laughs) It seems like we just started. It really is. It's been such a strange year with the Capitol closed and and so much concern about the pandemic and and the various issues related to it. Uh, But but we're we're starting to see things sort of shake out uh, and, and getting a sense as to where the legislature might be going. And maybe maybe taxes is a good place to start because that's something people are always interested in. And there's a lot going on this year. Yeah, you know, we've got um, the, 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 the budget is our spending plan, and uh, uh, they have been talking about all kinds of ideas, like, you know, taxing the wealthy. So, so what's, uh, what's soup? <laughs> you bet. Well, what's soup? well, this is a non-election year, and that's a time when the legislature tends to move a little bit more aggressively to raise taxes if it looks like that's going to be necessary because, of course, they don't need to stand election. Uh, in odd-numbered years. And so maybe the voters, even if they get a little bit mad about a tax increase, uh, it's more than a year away from the next election. So maybe they'll they'll forgive and forget. Who knows? But some of the tax proposals that are on the table right now, um, there was one, a, a very high-profile issue about possibly increasing the state income tax on high-income residents. Now, that died in the House earlier in the session. So we don't expect to see that again. But what we are seeing is... Um, about both the House and the Senate have moved uh, forward plans to increase the state capital gains tax. So that's definitely in the works. That w- that's a tax on the uh, sale of property, such as uh, jewelry and other assets. Um, and the House has already approved a bill to increase that, and the Senate looks like they're on track to do the same thing. That would take the top, little, uh, the top capital gains tax rate for individuals from 7.25% to 9%. So it's a fairly substantial increase, and that would allow the state to collect an extra 50 to $60 million a year in taxes. Um, another one to watch would be the uh, state inheritance tax or a state tax. Um, 
The House has already given preliminary approval to that idea, and the Senate looks like they're also going to do the same. Uh, the idea is that you would expand um, the estates, the number of estates that would be affected by the tax. Currently, the uh, estate tax kicks in for estates worth more than $4.49 million, and the latest proposal would apply that tax to smaller estates that are worth about $3.5 million or more. So still very substantial, obviously. The idea is, uh, again, that, that would get the state something along the lines of maybe an extra $25 million a year. So they're looking to raise money, for sure. And, you know, I, I'd heard some talk about trying to get the two houses to agree on, on some key legislation, and they just, you know, vote on it and pass it up upstairs to the Gubbs office, as opposed to having a lot of things uh, during the conference committee stage, which we're moving into. Yeah, that's an interesting pattern that we're seeing, um, particularly in the Senate. But there have been a number of bills where they um, usually they'll deliberately write a defect into a bill. And then that automatically sends that bill to what they call conference committees so that the House and Senate can negotiate over it. Um, the sense this year seems to be in a number of cases, especially on controversial issues, they send over clean bills. So that gives uh, if the Senate sends a clean bill to the House. That gives the House the option of simply agreeing to the Senate amendments, which can sort of be a much less painful process than, than fighting it out on the floor um, over, over a very controversial issue. And it sort of tends to tamp down controversy a little bit and make things a little bit easier for leadership. And I know, you know, one a big uh, bill that uh, a lot of folks were pushing was the uh, minimum, minimum, minimum wage, raising the minimum wage from $10.10. Where's that? Right. And we're seeing a lot of interest um, in uh, the union, various different union organizations, including uh, Local 5, um, the food food workers, food and service workers, and uh, Teamsters. There have been a number of uh, folks writing in, leader, leadership of those unions writing in and demanding that the House uh, hold hearings, uh, or hold, I'm sorry, hold a floor vote on that issue because it's been bottled up in committee in the House. The proposal came over from the Senate to increase the minimum wage from 10.10 to $12 an hour for Hawaii, and a lot of other states have already got a minimum wage of $12 more. Um, uh, but uh, it's basically been bottled up in uh, Richard Ramishi's committee, which would be the Labor and Tourism Committee. And, and the labor movement is basically saying, hey, you ought, to, you ought to put this on the floor for a vote so that people can go on record as either supporting an increase in the minimum wage or not. So we'll see if that goes anywhere on the floor? We will see. It's difficult. It's very late um, for this kind of a push uh, in session. Uh, so, you know, we've only got a couple of weeks left, and um, I think smart money probably says that the proposal is dead for the year, but you never know. Anything can yes. happen down there. All right. Well, thanks so much, Kev. Thanks for your time. That was your political reporter, Kevin Dayton, with today's Reality Check. Head to HonoluluCivilBeat.org to read his legislative coverage. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ward Village, committed to supporting Hawaii's communities and nonprofits such as Aloha Harvest and the Queens Medical Center. Learn more at wardvillage.com. In Arkansas, where there's a large Pacific Island community working in the Tyson chicken processing plants, the company began offering four hours of pay as an enticement for workers to get the shots. And just two weeks ago, the ambassador to the Marshall Islands received his vaccine at a plant to encourage more workers to get the vaccine. Dr. Sheldon Ricklin is a Marshallese doctor and associate professor at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. He operates out of a Springdale clinic serving his community. Half of the fatal cases of COVID in Arkansas were Marshallese. 
But we're happy to share this bright spot of news. Radio New Zealand reported today that 93% of Arkansas's elderly Marshallese community has received the vaccine. We're replaying Dr. Wicklund's interview from early March where he talked about the efforts to contain the virus. Surprisingly for our community, it's been well received. I think there's been a good vaccine acceptance among the Marshallese here in the community. We've been active in trying to get them into mass vaccine events, so the consulate office along with some of the nonprofits and UMS campus and one of the local pharmacies. We've been working together in getting them in and booking them and actually scheduling a time where everybody would come to get vaccinated, and that's been going really well. Tyson announced that they are actually doing, I think, on-site vaccinations in Iowa at their plants over there. Oh, I didn't hear about that, but I think that's great. For you to get your employees, it's best that you get, you know, you get your vaccines at the workplace because that's where they're going to be. We've always been trying to make sure that it's easy access for them to get vaccinated if they're given the choice. You know, they're essential workers, so they should definitely get vaccinated. You know, they're poultry workers, but they're considered essential workers as well. So, you know, they, they, they're, they're higher up on the eligibility listing as far as who should be getting vaccine. I think, I think that's great that now we got three, you know, vaccines that will be available. You know, I think, you know, like it's always been said by Dr. Pauci and others, whatever vaccine that's available for you to take, if it's available, just take it, get whatever is available there. But I know at least for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it's just a one-time dose, easy to store and easy to, do, you know, take around, doesn't have all these, you know, um, temperature requirements. But, you know, for a population you're trying to reach to make sure that they get vaccinated and just one shot of vaccine, I think that's a great thing. But you think you've, you've had a better time of it just because, you know, the community organized that task force and, and you're reaching out to the, the radio station there? I think it's been a combination of different things, you know, and, you know, part of it is definitely the, the, the task force and the community leaders. You know, we and, you know, working with many of the institutions that are, are on on the ground and some of the healthcare services just being able to collaborate with them better uh, and having that engage community leadership you know engages the community and as we were doing all these things with the with the testing you know we were also asking questions of those getting tested you know already you know if the vaccine is going to come and if it comes you know what's what's the best way to get it to you folks you know what's what's going to be most comfortable for you and you know we've been asking those questions along the way and as as our Marshallese community leaders the pastors the consulate the nonprofit organization you know um, leaders and some of their, the physicians are getting their vaccines you know we we've been doing a lot of media on them you know kind of showing them getting the vaccine and asking them why is it that you took the vaccine and what do you think your fellow members of the community should be doing and why is that? So we've been doing a lot of push on that to make sure that people understand it. You know, I think if when they hear it from somebody that looks like them, that sounds like them, and they're really comfortable doing it and these are people that they respect in the community, then it's easier for them to accept that it is safe for them to get it, that the option of Getting the vaccine is much safer than the option of getting infected. Had you seen pushback early on? 
Actually, to tell you the truth, not too much. I mean, it's been more misinformation than anything. You know, it's really not pushback. It's more, is it true that, you know, you're going to get the um, virus from the vaccine? Is it true that it's going to change your DNA if you get it because it's an mRNA vaccine? So we've been pushing more on educating the public in language, in culturally and linguistically appropriate language that we've been talking to them about and We've been posting things on social media with, you know, Marshallese love Facebook, and we have all these different Facebook pages, and sharing that with them of these things that are coming up out of these institutions that are, you know, scientifically proven, and, you know, including myself and trying to educate folks on the radio as well as on Facebook-like format as well. And when did you get vaccinated? I got vaccinated. Oh, that's a good question. I <laughs> forgot. I got vaccinated in uh, January. And when I got vaccinated, of course, the TV camera was there taking a picture of my getting vaccinated. You know, they were sharing on a social post. And after I got vaccinated, you know, I also got on to Facebook, you know, which is very uncomfortable for me to get out there in public. <laughs> but I had to do it, you know, basically speaking in Marshallese and ex- telling people my my experience, you know, and then also 24 hours and 48 hours after that. Thankfully for me, I mean, the only thing that I really felt was just pain at the vaccination site. It got worse the next day, but then the following day after that, it was gone. Mm-hmm. Same with the second dose as well. So very minor uh, Very reaction. minor side effects for me, yes. Have you heard anything more about side effects in general from the Marshallese community? Some of them had completely no side effects from it. They felt fine after after that. Some of them actually felt very tired mm. uh, about the next day, but you know, you know, really woke up the other day. You know, the second day after that, so um, all mild side effects for them so far that I've heard. Everybody's pleased that our numbers have been dropping. You know, here they're they're double digits, and uh, you know our our. Uh, Infection rate is very low, you know, 1%. So I don't know what it's like there in Arkansas. It's been kind of following the same trend, actually. I think overall, in, you know, in the state, the numbers have gotten better. You know, I think we've the positivity rate has fallen below 10% at this point. Among our Marshallese and Pacific Islanders, because, you know, back in July of 2020, our numbers were like 19% of the total cases in northwest Arkansas, and that's or a population of only 2.4% of the region. And as of last month, on February 1st, our numbers had declined to 6.3% from that 19%, which is incredible. And I think part of it is with all these collaboration between these organizations and then engage community and this leadership. You know, we, we found out that, you know, we're not the experts, that it is the community that is the experts, that for us to serve them, we need to ask them, how is it that we should get the things done for you? So we've been really listening to them. And they, when they say, you know, we're more comfortable going to the consulate office, mm. or more comfortable when we're with a group, or, you know, so also we're also kind of looking into if, you know, if we should look into, you know, getting the vaccine to churches that way. And we're basically asking those kind of questions from them. Right. What works? What works for them, exactly. Because I think everybody's different. And then, Marshallese and any other Pacific Islander or any other ethnic groups, you know, everybody has their own comfort level. Right. Well, that's good that the trend is is downward also, because I know there was just, you know, some concern because as our families move back and forth, you know, uh, some folks are are, are waiting to go home and cannot. and, uh, and, And that's just started now. 
you know, uh, with some of the island nations allowing uh, residents to come back. Uh, so that's a good thing. But, you know, we worry because the transmission, you know, someone comes from Arkansas, comes to Honolulu, you know, goes to the Marshall Islands. You don't want them to spread it. No, absolutely. You're absolutely correct. And, you know, I've been quite impressed also with our own, you know, governments back home and how they've been handling this and not just with closing of the borders, but with their activity of trying to get people vaccinated back in the islands. You know, I hear that at least the Marshall Islands has been, you know, going house to house as well, and their vaccine rates of people getting vaccinated is quite high in the region. So it's kind of good to see that and just kind of listening to how they're making sure that people, before they get home, they go through all these quarantine requirements, which, you know, for some it's, is inconvenient, yeah, but at humbug. the same time, it's definitely, you know, yeah, definitely it's safer for folks back home. So it's amazing that, you know, we're, we've been able to kind of do all that. Well, that, yeah, that's good news. There's light at the end of the tunnel as we come across this uh, one-year emergency situation. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's been amazing. a long year. That was Dr. Sheldon Rickman talking to us from Springdale, Arkansas. He's one of two Marshallese doctors trained at the University of Hawaii Medical School.